Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is June 6th, sorry, June 15th, 2020. Um, episode, what episode am I? I am forgetting my episode number. 29, ooh, getting close to the one month mark, the 30, 31, depending on how you look at it. Um, yeah, so today's episode, we'll be talking about my book review slash book notes on a book by Dan Gilbert called Stumbling on Happiness. In my one sentence summary, I would call it probably one of the best books on the psychology of happiness and how we fool ourselves. And if we, from listening to this, I hope you kind of get the idea that this is not a self-help book. It's actually a pretty amazing book uh, on human psychology and just kind of really digging into how our brain is wired, what happiness really is, what we what we think it is, and all the kind of various elements that make up what potentially kind of makes us happy. And my rating on the time of review is that I think this, I think everyone should read this book right now in solitude, uh, especially those who seem to be appalled, upset, lashing out at the world for a reason they think is a social good, but it's really something else, and I'll let you interpret that however uh, you want to. But I think this is something everyone should read, and I think if people can actually understand what this book this book is talking about, which isn't that difficult, and actually comprehend it and kind of embrace it, there would be less people out on the streets doing protests and riots because really the problem is within you, uh, and that's something you should really focus on working on first before you want to change the world, is my belief. Um, but yeah, I think this book kind of sums it up pretty nicely as well. It just makes you think more and try to empathize with people. Anyhow, so like always, um, I will try to just focus my attention on the particular points in various chapters that I thought kind of were very important and I wanted to highlight in uh, today's book notes. The full notes are available um, on the episode page as well as just kind of on my blog um, if you go to omdventures.com you'll just actually see it just on the front page uh, because this will be a recent content and if not you can find it in the podcast page or my book list page either or so to start off chapter one um, it's called journey to elsewhere and i think the big thing here uh, is so this is a quote in the book apparently gaining control can have a positive impact on one's health and well-being but be worse than ever having had any at all. Wait, sorry. I'm going to say that again. Apparently, gaining control can have a positive impact on one's own one's health and well-being, but be worse than ever having had any at all. Um, yeah, so I think this, can, this actually sounds like a little confusing senten- uh, sentence. Maybe I should have made it a little more detailed, but essentially the big thing about this chapter is control. It's the idea that people love control. And it also, I think, plays into what I believe kind of 
pushes into human motivation, which is the ability, um, the fact that you have autonomy, that you have ownership. And it makes me believe that these are not nice to have. These are kind of fundamental things that um, people need to have in their jobs, especially, and just kind of in their life in general. And it's the idea that we just love to be in control. Um, when we don't have control or we feel like we lose control, um, people become hopeless, they get depressed, they get sad. And it plays into like the default of wanting to know um, the future and like willingness to pay to know the future, I think. Um, because because you want to feel like you're in control, you feel like you can be in control of your own decision and your own future outcome by paying for things. So, you know, examples are like why people use financial advisors or maybe why people, you know, will buy various services that tell you, oh, if you buy this stock, um, then you will be a winner. Like people want to get a little closer and have an edge in forecasting their future because they feel like that's how they can control it. Um, and that's kind of why like, you know, businesses, like even weather forecasting exists, even though they're so, you know, they're not as accurate really. I think they get slowly better. I, I gotta say, most of the times, my weather was pretty decent, but yeah, it's still folly to think you can actually predict it. And another thing is that on the concept of control, um, as the main quote alluded to, the negative emotion of not having control gets completely compounded when you actually lose control. Uh, and this can actually be the case in situations where you're in an environment where a lot of random events can happen. Like I think COVID-19 was a probably a huge um, example that and that a lot of people probably felt in their lives where your business suffers, your life suffers, and it's just completely out of your control. And it was a random event that played out and it probably took control away from a lot of people. And that probably created a lot of negative feelings. And this is just a very important fact factor um, that needs to be accounted for human happiness to some degree. Chapter two, the view from in here. So two particular points on this chapter. Um, the first is, it, it seems that the emotional one would be the most true. So uh, I think I'll give a kind of a backdrop um, before I talk about these particular points. So in this chapter, they talk... Um, Dan Gilbert shares three particular types of happiness. So he calls it emotional happiness, moral happiness, and judgmental ha happiness. Uh, emotional happiness is the subjective one. Um, it's it's the one. It's where you're kind of. It's unique to you. It's unique to the person who's experiencing it, and it can only be defined in relativity to previous experiences. So. Um, an emotional happiness could be like the, the feeling you get when you smell, um, you know, your lover's shampoo and you just feel happy when you smell it. Um, and something very unique to you is very subjective and it's also in relativity to the past experiences you've had. Moral happiness is kind of like the happiness that people say that um, a martyr feels or a monk, uh, I mean a monk who lights himself on fire for a cause it's about the result of the well-lived life. Um, it's what, you know, if what you did served the good of the world and society, then you should be happy. Like that's kind of the view on moral happiness. And then there's something called judgmental happiness um, where it says you are not happy about going to an event, i.e. the emotional side, um, but it makes your spouse happy. So you are happy for them, which is judgmental happiness. So, it's not about you enjoying anything, but 
you feeling happy because someone you love is happy about what you did. And this kind of goes to my point on it. It seems to me that the emotional happiness would be the most truest form, in my opinion, um, and the one that matters the most because it's about what you're actually experiencing. So you know, if Tom did a lot of good deeds for the world, but tragedy struck him and he was unconscious till death, then one can argue that he will not actually be happy because it doesn't matter what the results you created to better or worse than society are um, because you're unconscious. You can't feel it. You don't know if you're happy or not. Um, but if you were actually, but if Tom was actually happy um, when he was actually experiencing the deeds, when he was actually, you know, doing the things to actually help society, um, then that's actually emotional happiness because you're subjective to that specific experience and you're relating it to past experiences um, but if we think of it as moral happiness, where people look at uh, what Sean did, or sorry, what Tom did, and say, "Oh yeah, like he did this with study, uh, so that must be like a happy thing because it's a result." Like he can't feel any of that. Um, it didn't like he's unconscious, and so I think when I think about what of the three happiness ideas that Gilbert talks about, the one that really I think fits at least my definition of what, of what happiness is, is the emotional one where it is really focused on the actual process and the activity. Um, and it's more focused on, I think, the intrinsic side and more about the experiences that you have. And this ties into what I want to talk about called experience stretching, um, which is talked about in the chapter. And Gilbert says, quote, not knowing what we're missing can mean that we are truly happy under circumstances that would not allow us to be happy once we have experienced the missing thing. So I, I guess like as I read this, I'm realizing that his way of kind of saying things is very like roundabout. And I think one of the reasons I enjoyed the book is because that's how I tend to write a lot of my uh, essays as well. But as I read it, I am also realizing that yeah, when you read it aloud, it also sounds a little weird and it can be hard to understand. So I'll read it again in case you got confused. The quote goes, not knowing what we are missing can mean that we are truly happy under circumstances that would not allow us to be happy once we have experienced a missing thing. And that's about, it's kind of a, I think the simple analogy is the ignorance is bliss statement that people have. And it's literally that um, experience stretching is kind of the idea that not knowing can actually be good for you because you don't know what you're missing. And if you actually knew what you're missing, you might actually be unhappy. But because you don't know it, um, it'll be fine. Um, but also the fact goes that as you experience more, your range of what gives you happiness expands. So an example that I was actually giving to my uh, girlfriend um, to explain this concept was imagine like when if you go to a hotel, it's a nice hotel in New York City and you say, wow, this was an amazing experience. I'd kind of rate it like a 7 out of 10 on the happiness scale. And so that's kind of your experience set. And then let's say you go to Singapore and you go to the Marina Bay Sands Hotel, which is like one of the you know amazing hotels with a boat on top of it. And then you go, wow, this is an amazing experience. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 on the happiness scale. And then let's say you go back to New York City and you go back to that same hotel. But now because your experience set has widened from when New York City was the first hotel and it was 7 out of 10 and then the next one was so much better at 9 out of 10 in comparison to that recent experience this New York hotel now becomes more like a 5 out of 10 
And as you, so as you learn more, each experience could actually, you know, make you less happy because now you're comparing it to the last experience set. Um, so in that, if you wanted to cherish the first experience and ignorance is bliss works, but in one way, you could also say that you're just really limiting what you could be happy with. Like you could expand it further by having more experiences, but that also means that you could be less happy with things that you used to be happy with because comparatively, they're not as great anymore. And the next one I want to talk about, um, let's see, I guess I'll actually skip straight to chapter five. So in chapter five, there's the, the chapter is called the Hound of Silence. And this is a particular segment of a quote. So the quote goes, I'm uh, sorry, so this quote is kind of, I only picked out a part of a sentence because I thought that was the most relevant part. So it goes, when the rest of humankind imagines a future, it rarely notices what imagination has missed. And the missing pieces are much more important than we realize. And so the the chapter kind of begins with this story of Sherlock Holmes, where I think the case was um, someone had stolen like a racehorse or something, and um, they're trying to figure out who would have done it. And Sherlock Holmes notes something very interesting. Um, so there was a guard dog that was guarding all the horses. And Sherlock Holmes asks, um, did the dog bark? And turns out the dog did not bark. And because of that, Holmes um, figures out that the person who stole the racehorse is someone that is very familiar with the area and is actually probably a close um, related person because the dog didn't bark because the dog probably knew the thief that stole the horse. And the idea is that you want to look at the things that are actually missing because everyone's looking for um, new ideas or what what is there, what is present. But looking at the things that are not there can actually show a lot. And yeah, our imagination always kind of focuses on, you know, when we try to forecast, like we try to think of, okay, what what is there? What could be there? Um, but we never seem to think about what isn't there and what are we missing? Um, it's kind of the Charlie Munger idea of inversion, um, looking at what isn't there, what is absent. And that can be something that can be a very powerful model. And I don't really have anything else to talk on that. It's just, it's just once again, a very powerful model to keep in mind. And I'm even also considering on how can I think about ways of asking myself, what is missing when I'm trying to, you know, forecast the future, when I'm trying to um, imagine something out um into you know the five ten years out what can i what can i be aware of um yeah but it's a good model to have i just haven't figured out how i'm going to utilize it yet but i just wanted to share that particular one another part of the chapter that i want to talk about uh so the quote goes when we are selecting we consider the positive attributes of our alternatives and when we are rejecting we consider the negative attributes so this is the idea that you will select options that um, that is outstanding at something, though it's got horrible other traits. So we have this kind of optimistically oriented bias. And so when you get to choose something and make a selection, because you're the one selecting it, you tend to look at it, you tend to just overweight all the good qualities. Um, and I, I wonder if that's actually the case for investors who buy stocks. Like, 
when you're choosing to buy companies and go long a business, do you, you know, do investors have a tendency to just overweight all the good stuff and just ignore the hairy, horrible qualities? Um, and the other is the other side is applicable where if, for, for example, you're in a situation where all these op- options are pre-selected for you, then your only decisions are to reject it or not reject it, right? It's not selecting or rejecting. It's more so you either reject it or not reject it. So you don't do anything. You just keep the option that was given to you. In that scenario, it turns out that people are more likely to um, reject that exact option because you're more likely to see the negatives um, of having it. So because you were kind of forced to have it on you, it's kind of outside your control. So you don't like it. And so you will kind of nitpick and find ways of not owning that you know for an investor it'd be like if you inherited a portfolio you'll look at it and say you'd probably figure out reasons to not own it and to actually change it to the way that you want to so that you can pick with your own reasons um so i thought that was a pretty interesting idea to um, keep in mind at least for me if i think about investing um, and having my own portfolio is trying to keep in mind that yeah like i might be probably too optimistic um i might be ignoring all the negative um, traits uh, I might not be paying attention to them as seriously so just kind of keep keeping that in mind and I don't know maybe even the idea of you know interacting with other people maybe I don't pre-select stuff for them maybe I make it so that people can choose and select things so that they will eventually just convince themselves of how amazing things are because they're the ones choosing um, instead of have, giving people a situation where things are chosen ahead of time that could be the same for when you work in a company, like if you're a manager, maybe you don't tell someone to do something that was kind of decided ahead of time because they'll figure out things that are just bad about the decision itself. So those are kind of two particular models um, that I wanted to share. Ooh, before I move on, there's something else I want to talk about where, uh, once again, it's on, it's the idea of like ignoring the things that are missing. And one particular idea that I loved... Um, that was shared is just that people are just always looking to find things that worked and like you know i think a very common example is like in history we we see religion as like the big thing where people you know there's so many cases where people say oh if you know people who believed in god look at all the things and miracles that happened to them look at how they didn't hit any like shipwrecks but that's also because the people that all the bad stuff happened to just ended up dying so it's kind of like you ignore all the bad stuff um, and try to create a causal relationship with something. When you, if you try to look at it holistically, that's not the case. It like it's more like um, if you know ten soldiers survived the war and they all believed in God. A priest might say, "You see, you if you believe in God, you will not die in wars." But only ten came back, and the ninety other believers of God died. So it's that's the kind of thing that's missing in the analysis. Same could be said about companies. You can say that venture-backed companies succeed. Look at the 10 companies that are so successful because they're venture-backed. And then there's the 10,000 others that failed. And nobody talks about the missing data point. Um, moving on. Chapter 6, the future is now. I had a number of points. This was, this was a busy chapter for me. Um, so the first quote, goes when people are prevented from feeling emotion in the present they become temporarily unable to predict how they will feel in the future 
I'll say it again. When people are prevented from feeling emotion in the present, they become temporarily unable to predict how they will feel in the future. So for me, I interpret this particular uh, segment as this particular quote as individuals who choose to make a decision based on their gut feelings for what would make them happy ended up being happy in the future with their choice compared to those who were told to think about it as they ended up overriding the gut feeling to satisfy what the external people would approve of as the correct decision um it's it's kind of like the idea is that when so if i reference the inner game of tennis uh model where in that book tim galloway has the self one and self two self one is kind of like the Kahneman systems two thinker you're very rational you think about the outside world but also, your inf- the fact that you quote-unquote think you're a rational thinker means you're just really thinking about what society wants out of you. You're thinking about um, what is society so- socially acceptable, what does, the, what does everyone else think, will think will, what would they think of you if you make this decision. So yeah, it's a self-conscious side. And then self two, which is more the systems one type person, is it's the gut feeling. It's just the initial reaction that comes out. And I personally dislike thinking fast and slow for making it seem like system one is the more uh, kind of animalistic instinctual thing and they make it sound like it's not a great thing which I thought was completely wrong Um, because I actually think the overthinking rationalizing part makes it it makes you think that you are rational but you really are not most people aren't rational I think to believe that you're rational is kind of like it, I really feel like people who think they're rational kind of have their head, head too far up their ass in one way um, because to believe that you're rational is to fit to not realize that you're a creature who will always find a reason to justify your behavior. And that's what rationality really is, which kind of the book, this book actually talks about in detail later on. But I digress. I'm once again going off on a tangent. So main point um, of this particular quote is the idea that when people um, think about making a decision and they just go with their gut, so if you're picking like a poster, for example, or you're picking a career and you just go with your gut um, because of how it makes you feel right now, if it makes you happy um, to make this decision, if this poster makes you happy right now, if this particular career interests you, excites you right now, then that will actually lead on to actually being happy helping you become happy in the future. Whereas those people who end up overthinking it, um, who end up making a decision because they think it'll make their guidance counselor happy to pick a certain career, or it'll, if it'll make their parents happy, um, it's, they end up overthinking and they think about making the correct choice as if there is a correct choice. Um, they end up not being happy and they actually end up regretting that decision. Um, and so in, in one way, it kind of also signifies how we're extremely bad at predicting what we will enjoy and like. Um, and that kind of gets compounded when people start to think about um, or becoming conscious of what the external world would want or would potentially want from them. And the next quote I want to talk about in this chapter is, because our brains are hell-bent on responding to current events, we mistakenly conclude that we will feel tomorrow as we feel today. This is the inability to look at every situation as kind of an independent bet, independent scenario. 
Um, at the most micro version, it's kind of like how when you play tennis, for example, once again, referring to the inner game of tennis book is that, let's say you had a bad serve um, and now you have to do your next serve. Well, it's kind of like saying the because you just had a bad serve, you're, you know, the emotional side of you, the self-conscious side of you will tell yourself that, oh, you just had a bad serve. You're just going to have a bad serve now. And if you have a bad serve now, you're going to have a bad serve right after that. Um, which is ridiculous because the reality is that each event is an independent event, right? This new serve, this next serve you do, it's independent of what you just did before. The game result isn't independent, but the actual action itself is. If you had a bad serve before, that doesn't mean you're going to have a bad serve now. Um, because if you practice completely um, and you're ready, then it shouldn't matter. And that's kind of the most micro version of... Um, what will happen even like on a day, for example, so if you have a bad day, people will extrapolate and say, I'm going to have a bad day tomorrow because I have a bad day today. Um, instead of being able to think that, no, um, today was a bad day, but they just can't seem to reset for the next day. They kind of hold on to the past, which is the self one side, the ego, um, the self-conscious side. And the next idea, uh, this quote is, each of us is trapped in a place a time and a circumstance and our attempts to use our minds to transcend those boundaries are more often than not ineffective. We think we are thinking outside the box only because we can't see how big the box really is. Imagination cannot easily transcend the boundaries of the present. And one reason for this is that it must borrow machinery that is owned by perception. So for me, I felt I understood this as basically that our imaginations are are limited by what we've perceived, whether it's events and objects of past and present. So the more you perceive, the wider your box of imagination will become. So the idea is that you really aren't, you never get to think outside the box. It, to actually think that you can think outside the box is more so an admission that you have no idea how big this box actually is. Rather, the more people experience, the more they will realize that there's so much more, um, so many more ways of doing things and that's not necessarily thinking outside the box, um, to be quite fair. So that's the idea. More experiences gives you more chance of imagining. So our imagination is limited by what we perceive and what we've experienced. And because the way we forecast our future is based on the present and what we've experienced now, it makes me rethink about um, how people set goals. You know, like people say, you know, you should set goals at 10 years time and that makes you long term well peter Thiel has a pretty interesting question he asks himself and other people where he says if you have a 10-year goal figure out how you can do it in six months and it's an it's a reframe of the idea to figure out you know how you can quickly test and truncate um this 10-year goal into a six month a project that's possible in six months but it also seems much like it makes more sense now because if we are to believe that our prediction of the future, so this 10-year goal we set, is very much rooted into the present and limited by our own perceptions and our own experiences, then the 10-year goal is really more of a, more a reflection of what the current present self of myself, of me, wants. So the 10-year goal, if I set it now, is not what the Dan Daniel of you know 2030 would actually want, because that Daniel is non-existent right now he doesn't exist and his own you know 
perceptions and desires will be impacted by a different set of experiences. So given that our 10-year goals are really just a projection of our present selves, the idea to try to figure out how we can as rapidly achieve that 10-year goal mark um, in six months is the most, I think, prudent thing someone can actually do. So now I'll move on to the next chapter. This also, I think, has a number of points I want to talk about. Um, Chapter six and seven, I think, were the kind of big chapters. Or actually, it was six, seven. I want to say, yeah, six, seven were the big ones. Um, Yeah, I think so. So chapter seven, it's called Time Bombs. So the first idea is as we as we experience something the amount of pleasure it yields declines over successive occasions you know it's what psychologists call habituation economists call it declining marginal utility and what some people call it marriage and that's kind of uh what this chapter talks about the idea of habituation um and apparently the way to combat habituation um so the risk of going to declining marginal utility are in two particular methods one is time aka spacing things out and two is variety and the thing is that you only need one or the other when you combine time and variety um, you end up actually making the experience less pleasurable Um, so it can actually have a negative net effect if you make things too spaced out and too random it's kind of like people who go to the gym People who rarely go to the gym and and who do random things each time make absolutely no progress. Whereas people who frequently go to the gym but change their uh, variety of exercises, that's actually how you develop strength. Strength development happens because you are continuously imposing different kinds of stressors. But with the magic happens when you apply a stressor And as your body adapts, you have to introduce a different stressor since it's already adapted to the original stressor. And that's how you continuously make strength development work. Um, So that's the case where you have frequency of time, so it's actually a habit, but then you change variety. And that's the same with a book. You can read every day, but if you read a different book, then you have seized it from having any kind of decline in marginal utility because there's a variety of books. Conversely, um... Some people use this for, let's say, travel because they want to have novelty of experience. They don't travel as frequently. And honestly, like so for me, I go to New York on an annual basis. And every time I go to New York, it's still an amazing and fun experience because there's still, um, I don't know, I guess because I spaced it out where I only go for about a week or two, a week, I'd say, yeah, a week on average, a year. Every time I go, it's special. It's um, And there really isn't a declining in marginal utility. Same thing with when I go back to like South Korea. I go back every few years or so, and every time I do, there's been enough of a time lag that it's still a novel and fun experience. And so the idea is that if you want to combat uh, habituation, this idea of declining marginal utility, you have two ways of looking at it. You either space things out, you change the time parameters, or you add variety. And I honestly think the second method is the way for any kind of development because if you actually want to develop a habit if you want to compound growth you have to introduce variety um, but you cannot sacrifice time you have to do things over and over and over again in frequency and you want to make it a habit but to not have any decline in marginal utility you have to introduce variety so I thought that was a pretty awesome uh, model 
in combating habituation. Another model I want to talk about is that our approach on opportunity cost is anchored by the starting point. So, like if you think about, um, you know, when you go shopping, stores will have super expensive items as an anchor to make other items look like a bargain. It's kind of also like the model for, I think, goal setting too, possibly, where you know how people say you, you want to like reach for the stars and set a really high goal so that when you fall short of it, you don't fall too short from it. So I think that's another idea where if you aim high and set up a pretty good or pretty um, overachieving starting point, then the likelihood that you kind of achieve similar levels of achievement would be higher than if you said, oh, I'm just going to make it really easy and, you know, have low expectations. Some people say that low expectations is the key to a happy life, but in essence, I don't know if that's actually true. Uh, I think that could actually be falling into the bias of experience stretching, where your experience is so limited, you think you are happy, but once you introduce more experiences, you realize you weren't. Um, but by having a stretch goal, you can fix that. But yeah, so this idea of starting points and how they anchor opportunity costs. Same thing for even, I think, um, sales techniques like real estate agents. They will show you an outrageously expensive house as your first house so that you get anchored to the first one. And then when you see a slightly less expensive house um, but looks of better value, it still might be overvalued. But because your starting point is so high, this one will seem like a bargain to you. Um, the final thing I want to talk about. So this is a quote that I think is amazing. <laughs> um, so the quote goes, As much as we all despise racism and sexism, these isms have only recently been considered more turpitudes and thus condemning Thomas Jefferson for keeping slaves or Sigmund Freud for patronizing women is a bit like arresting someone today for having driven without a seatbelt in 1923. And for me, all I will say about this is amen. And this is a clear example of showcasing presentism where people over uh, emphasize and overweight what is a commonality uh, and what is just the case to be in the present and completely um, enforce the presence rules and laws into the past, uh, which just doesn't seem to make any sense. Moving on to chapter eight, it's called Paradise Glossed. Uh, the idea here I want to talk about is, so the quote goes, one of the reasons why most of us think of ourselves as talented, friendly, wise, and fair-minded is that the human mind naturally exploits each word's ambiguity for its own gratification. So this practically is a nice way of, a lot, uh, I guess a professional way of saying um, that when we're given a chance to define talent, friend, you know, uh, talent, friendliness, wisdom, um, attractiveness to our own definition, we will give it a definition fitting exactly what we believe uh, is true. And so we will rate ourselves amazingly high if given a chance. And some, I think some people might say, oh, like, but no, I'm, that's not the case because I'm humble. I think people who say that are kidding themselves. Um, some people might say you're humble, like they're, they're humble and they'll say, oh, you know, like I'm only like six out of 10 on the talent or talent side or intellect intellect side but that's because they've created a definition of intellect and wisdom or talent um, that is so high that only they can hit like a six out of ten but everyone else uh, would be like a three out of ten so 
you're just kidding yourself by telling yourself you're humble. But the reality is that you still think you're an overachiever and you're better than everyone else. Um, and that's funny in that perspective because that's kind of how human psychology is really wired. And I'll kind of skip to chapter 11. It's called Reporting Live from Tomorrow. It's the final chapter of the book. And I think the one big idea I want to share is from Adam Smith, the father of modern economics. Um, he wrote this in 1776. The desire for food is limited in every man by the narrow capacity of the human stomach, but the desire of the conveniences and ornaments of building, dress, equipage, and household furniture seems to have no limit or certain boundary. And I think this is kind of an all-encompassing idea of what I think to be um, a world, or at least modern-day first world societies that have these kind of massive self-replicators. Um, it's actually a topic that's covered in chapter 10, but I thought I'll talk about it here um, on the back of Adam Smith's quote on people's, people's ability to ignore diminishing returns of utility um, and just being obsessed with consumerism. And it's predicated on the false belief, the false belief that um, happiness is tied to consumerism, which requires wealth. And in chapter 10, uh, Dan Gilbert talks about how these false beliefs are propagated, um, they can only be propagated when you actually have a stable society. So that's kind of where this weird dichotomy happens, where because you actually have a stable society, people can actually create these false beliefs to kind of trick themselves and it becomes a societal norm and it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy that people gravitate towards where then although you know what um, the equation kind of goes like yeah like if you have everyone seeking wealth then the individual will thrive but it's more so the economy will thrive and when the economy thrives um, they want they will kind of lead this kind of continuous I guess circular referencing flywheel of the a thriving economy uh, promotes more consumerism and they'll say that leads to more happiness and people will believe that and it'll do more and more and more of it without actually stopping and introspecting and looking at themselves and saying yeah this actually doesn't work um, I think another really cool part of self-replicating um, this idea of all these false beliefs that are propagated in the first world is the idea of having kids turns out uh, and also Dan Gilbert this really amazing lecture that's on YouTube on the factor that People who have kids are uh, way less happier um, than people who don't. And the false belief is one society has created where they say like having children is like the best thing ever. Turns out it's not. It, it really isn't. Um, but people keep on saying that in a way to, in when we may even cope with how miserable they are, that it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's not true, it's a false belief, but so many people do it that it's made to be, it's made people to think that it's true when it actually isn't. Um, because when they actually did studies with couples who didn't have children, and then couples who had children, and then the couples who eventually, you know, have kids leave off, the happiness level of is highest at with couples who do not have children. Like they're the happiest they could possibly be. And it continuously declines um, to the lowest point on their happiness meter is when they have teenage children. And then as the children get l more detached and less um, 
they spend less time at home, parents actually become happier. And it's only when the par- the kids actually leave the nest completely is when the parents actually become closest to their pre-children happiness level, which I thought was a really interesting uh, study. And it kind of, I think, it just makes sense. Um, and that might just be my own kind of bias, but I think the bigger bias is really that society has kind of planted this idea that having ch- children is a good thing or it will make you happier. But it's there's also that whole relativity of because you start referencing your daily activities to other um, activities during this kind of depressed zone of low levels of happiness, small segments of having children seem almost so great that you trick yourself into think, thinking that having children is an amazing thing because you've already forgotten how happy you were before having children. Didn't want to leave this on that topic, but turns out it did. Um, so yeah, that's kind of an overview of the book. Um, it was a super cool, fun read, and there's so many different exercises. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, there's so many really fun exercises in uh, the book where it really... Uh, reminded me how average I am and I hope it reminds a lot of people who read it that they are all are average as well because really there really aren't that many on average people who are not uh, in the average spectrum and I think this is a really humbling book because of that it reminds you how your brain's actually wired and because of that it actually also teaches you that you can probably um, make yourself even better by just listening to other people and reading about their experiences because they're not unique and neither are you. So we're all kind of wired in the same way. It's just some people know how to utilize it for the betterment of themselves and others. All right, hope you enjoyed this. And yeah, please check out the book book review uh, that I kind of wrote out in full. And if you like that, then yeah, you should definitely pick up the book and read it. It'll blow your mind, I hope. All right, take care.